going to find the way, all right? The first time I get on my ears is my uh, tech operator, Hamish, says, not a fan. You know, there he is sitting here. He loves the Beths, apparently. Anyway, this is one of the greatest singers, the best-selling music artist of all time. Seven of her albums have sold at least 10 million copies worldwide. What's her name? Her name is Celine Dion, and she's 55 years old today. She's faced a lot of criticism from the likes of uh, Hamish in there, uh, or other critics, saying that the music is bad at all contemporary. But according to producer Randy Jackson, Dion, Houston and Carey, they are the voices of the modern era. era. And here at the panel, we are more than happy to give Celine Dion her rightful dues. Celine, if you're listening, happy birthday from me, Wallace Chapman. Here we go. That's right, when you want it the most, David Farrer. Are you having a boogie in Wellington? <laughs> no, uh, no, I'm just sheltering from the rain and the wind. <laughs> yeah, okay. What about you, Julie? Oh, I love Celine uh, yes. Wallace. Yeah, the Titanic. Um, That's right. Just beautiful ballads. She's the queen of power ballads. Yep, and yep, right. I wish her a happy birthday from Julie yeah. Woods as well. Okay, so from Julie Woods and ha- Wallace Chapman, <laughs> Celine, if you are listening, a happy birthday. Tweet uh, at the panel said <laughs> if you are. Um, and here's, here's, a, here's a fact for you. You'd be into this, David Farrow. You're into business. Um, on, regarding the financial impact on Las Vegas, when she, where she held a residency, get this, this is, this is actual. Economic researcher Stephen Brown said, bigger than Elvis, Sinatra and Liberace put together, definitely. That is the impact David Celine had on Las Vegas. Oh, you can well believe that. Been to Vegas a couple of times, and um, one of the things people don't realise, I think, how Vegas has some of the best entertainment in America. The quality of their shows, really? the magicians, Celine Dion's there. People think it, you go there for the gambling. Of course, some people do, but actually, a lot of people go there for the Celine Dion's. Is, is that right? What What have you seen in Vegas? Oh, I went to three different Cirque La Soul shows, just absolutely amazing. Penn and Teller, who are perhaps the one of the best magicians in the world, wow. um, they just have absolutely incredible events on every night, night after night. So uh, this is a major part of why, why people go there. It's not just for the casinos. Interesting, David. Thanks for the insight. David Farrer and Julie Woods with me this afternoon. Uh, a tip for the crumpets. Paul says, crumpet tip to avoid the soggy bottom. Toast well, then hold the crumpet up and blow steam out through the top and leave upside down momentarily. You're welcome, says Paul. Paul, <laughs> hold the line. We're coming to you tomorrow. 
<laughs> uh, this this has been another big news this afternoon. Disgraced former Minister Stuart Nash has been accused of breaking the law by trying to cover up the email which ended his career. Nash was sacked from Cabinet after the email sent to donors about Cabinet discussions was uncovered by media. The Prime Minister's office under pressure after it was found that some staff knew about the email has released a statement and timeline detailing the events surrounding the email. Prime Minister Chris Hipkins yesterday said he had asked the Cabinet Press Secretary to conduct a review of correspondence between Stuart Nash and his donors. The Prime Minister yesterday sacked Stuart Nash from all of his ministerial portfolios following another breach of the Cabinet manual. I am truly sorry, Nash said on Facebook. For now, I will continue to be your local MP. And we had Dr Grant Duncan yesterday on the panel. He said he wouldn't be surprised there were other examples of this in Parliament. But for now, we have Andrew Eccleston, a Senior Associate at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University. Andrew, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. So the office of the predecessor knew about but didn't act on Nash emailing confidential cabinet discussions. This has been quite big news this afternoon. Should it have been kicked upwards? Well, I find it surprising that it wasn't um, because the culture of no surprises um, permeates the handling of OIA requests in particular. Um, and the cabinet manual says, uh, paragraphs 3.22, uh, in their relationship with ministers, officials should be guided by the no surprises principle. As a general rule, they should inform ministers promptly of matters of significance within their portfolio responsibilities, particularly where these matters may be controversial or may become the subject of public debate. And it's surprising to me that uh, when in March 2022, Stuart Nash's office, and I'm going from the timeline provided by the Prime Minister's yeah. office today, when, in March 2022, Stuart Nash's office consults the Prime Minister's office uh, about... Sorry, in July 2021, they consulted the Prime Minister's office, including the Deputy Chief of Staff and the Senior Advisor, including the relevant email, OK? And uh, they said, we think this email is out of scope. Now, regardless of the fact that they think that email is out of scope, the Deputy Chief of Staff and the Senior Advisor would know that the Prime Minister has an interest in the propriety and ethics of cabinet members' conduct and breaches of cabinet confidentiality. So I find it surprising that that wasn't pushed up at least to an official in DPMC who was responsible for ethics or to the Prime Minister's Chief of Staff. Now, anybody like me who's worked in government uh, will know that cock-up, not conspiracy, is often you know, what happens. Right. But it could also mm. be simply a lack of training in propriety and ethics. Ah. Because New Zealand doesn't have a lobbying framework, we're, you know, maybe officials are not used to thinking about this carefully enough. Interesting. Uh, shall we jump straight into our panel? I know, David, you've been uh, tweeting about this. Your take? This has gone from a sort of 3 out of 10 scandal to an 8.5 or 9 out of 10. There's three aspects to this. The first is they broke the Official Information Act. There are some hundred requests which are grey. This was black and white. We want all the emails between you and your donors. That could not be clearer. And the defence was that it was in his capacity as an MP, not a minister. Well, sometimes there is a grey area. 
He was talking about what happened in cabinet and how people voted in cabinet. <laughs> you do not attend cabinet as an MP, you attend as a minister. There is no good faith possibility that they knew that should have been released. Worse, when the newsroom went to the ombudsman to complain, they didn't release the full email to the ombudsman. They sent him a redacted email. You're not meant to do that. The ombudsman should see everything. They obviously knew that the ombudsman would say, this must be released if they'd sent the ombudsman a full, the full email. So they really misled the ombudsman. So you've got two things related to the OIA. And the PM's office was involved, the deputy chief of staff, who is the person who led a seminar for Labour MPs, according to Dr Sharma, on how to avoid disclosing under the OIA by claiming you're doing it as an MP, not right. a minister. So this is not a junior staffer. This is the second most powerful official in the PM's uh, office. Andrew, what did we just... And not only did she work yeah. with Nash's office to say don't release it, what we just heard from Dr Eccleston, oh, I've worked in a prime minister's office. If you find out that a minister is emailing donors details of how people voted in cabinet and the arguments, there's no question you must elevate that. Okay, Andrew, what, what, what would you respond? How would you respond to David? So I was an investigator in the Ombudsman's office for 12 years, and David makes some sound points. Um, uh, the first, the first thing is that the, the prime minister, the, the timeline released today says very clearly that. Nash sent the email to Troy Bowker and Greg, Greg Loveridge with the information, okay? But then there is a later claim that it was in, he received it in his capacity as a Labour MP. Well, this is playing the hack game to the point of nonsense, right? The information that Stuart Nash MP holds in his head as an MP when he's talking with donors is information that he's only got in his head as Stuart Nash Cabinet Minister, so it's ridiculous to try and play this game of, oh, well, I was doing this in my capacity as an MP. Uh, he clearly held the information as a minister. Now, what's interesting to me is that both News Hub's article and Stuff's article say that they have a copy of Nash's email. So it's a quite easy thing to do is to look at that email and say, does it come from his ministerial email address? Does it come from his MP email address? But regardless of where it came from, he held the information as a minister. Okay. The, sec the second thing is, as an ombudsman investigator, yes, absolutely, I would have expected the ombudsman's office, if they received information from uh, Nash's office after they'd notified an OIA complaint and Nash's office only provided a redacted copy of that email, I would have gone straight back and said, no, I want the unredacted copy. That's the whole purpose of the Ombudsman's function under the OIA, is to look at the unredacted material and decide whether or not there was good reason for withholding. OK, uh, Julie. Thank you, Wallace. Um, Andrew, I'm just thinking there's a lot of words and language that's used uh, around this process that it's difficult for the average person to understand. Yeah. How do you think, you know, we might better better get a grasp of what this is all sure. about. It's a great question, Julie. Really, I think yeah. it's really important uh, that uh, citizens no, know I, I agree about with you. this stuff. Um, so what, what, what this boils down to is um, a minister who, when he was running for election, received donations from two people, then broke the rules around cabinet confidentiality to provide these two people with information about discussions in cabinet and what the cabinet discussion had been. That's the first problem. That's his behavior that he was sacked for. But it then turns out that he appears not to have been playing straight with the Official Information Act 
because he realized that disclosing that email to his donors would show that he'd broken cabinet confidentiality and a journalist would have had the story uh, back in July 2021. So he hid that email and consulted with the Prime Minister's office. Now, whether by accident or by design, they allowed it to, his response to go out saying, oh, no, you can withhold that. You don't have to provide that to the journalist. And that has meant that the Prime Minister's office now looks like it's party to this process. Yeah. Thanks for the clarification, Julie. That was a really good question because it, it's getting very convoluted. Here's what some people are saying, too, uh, to, to, to all of you here. The conflict of interest angle here, because also uh, Taranaki King Country... Uh, MP Barbara Kuruga resigned from her roles as National's Agriculture, Biosecurity, Food Safety spokesperson in October over a quote-unquote significant conflict, conflict of interest relating to the prosecution of her son over animal welfare. And she filed formal complaints against a range of MPI employees and calls for one, called for one to be fired among dozens of emails to ministry officials which used her National Party letterhead She's still an MP there, so how does that relate to Stuart Nash being asked to, well, being considered to be stepping down as an MP round the panel? Who are you asking, Wallace? David. <laughs> she got removed rightfully by Christopher Luxon from her portfolios. It was a clear conflict of interest. Um, she should, should not she have still been be an MP? Yes, but she hasn't broken the law. The Official Information Act is the law of the land. There are offences for breaking that. And what we have here is that the minister, the minister's office and the prime minister's office all consulted and, if you use harsh language, conspired to subvert the law. That okay, is Andrew, a very different Andrew? level to bad judgment. Because the Official Information Act requires Got it, David people Andrew. to act on good faith. Um, I don't know that she should necessarily have resigned, but I think that you, any party that keeps a candidate who thinks that's a good way to behave is um, being risky with voter trust and confidence. Let's put it that way. And I think the same thing with Stuart Nash. I will be surprised if either Nash or Kuriger run for their parties at the next election, because if they do effectively those parties are saying, well, it doesn't matter about those major areas of judgment or even breaches of the law, in uh, apparently Nash's case, um, that's okay with us. And you go, yeah. really? Is that the kind of behaviour that we're going to put up with? Andrew Eccleston, good to have you on, Senior Associate uh, at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University. Uh, it is uh, 14 to 5. Now, a government decision to grant new offshore oil and gas exploration permits has been labelled completely irresponsible and a betrayal of the Pacific. The Ministry for Business, Innovation and Employment has invited parties to apply for oil and gas exploration permits in Taranaki. The announcement comes a week after climate scientists issued an urgent warning. Leave those fossil fuels in the ground. With us is Nick Henry, Climate and Justice Lead at Oxfam. And Nick, thank you so much for uh, waiting for us. Jonathan, thanks for having me. How disappointing is this for you? It's deeply concerning uh, that the government has um, approved a new exploration permit um, in the same uh, two weeks as we've had the 
international intergovernmental panel on climate change come out in its synthesis report and say that even burning the existing uh, fossil fuels in currently producing fields would take us beyond 1.5 degrees. And we know that actually we can't burn more than 40% of known reserves. So to go looking for more at this point is is absurd and it's really irresponsible. But is it though, Nick? Because isn't this just the fulfilling of a contract? Uh, you know, you've got the 2018 and 2019 rounds uh, done. Uh, the government's just launched the 2020 block offer process now. All they're doing is fulfilling a commitment, a contract that's been signed. Well, the commitment that they made... Uh, going into the last election was to uh, ban new offshore oil and gas exploration. And I think the fact that they've um, allowed this one to go through shows that that ban was poorly implemented and it should have looked more carefully at making uh, those criteria retrospective. I think they thought they could get away with using the existing criteria to deny the permits and the courts have come back and said they can't. But I think you're right, it does show that we need to consider the whole thing and all the permits, not just this case, mm. and the fact that they've just opened new um, block offers for exploration in Taranaki, um, we think shows that the government needs to go into the next election with a clear plan to end all oil and gas exploration in New Zealand on Ra- land and sea. Round the panel on this, we'll come back briefly to you, Nick. Julie, uh, ban oil, oil exploration or not? Yes, I I was surprised that this was actually going to happen and I'm kind of embarrassed to be a New Zealander on the world stage when we're listening to Bronwyn Hayward who was in the Intergovernmental Climate Change Panel and coming back and saying that, you know, (laughs) this needs to, to be a priority. And I just wonder, we've come together on other issues such as the pandemic, the Christchurch earthquake. Nick, so how can we get a shared vision um, with climate change? Yeah, well, the other, um, it's a great question. And um, the other things we've seen in the last couple of weeks are some really inspiring actions coming from our neighbours in the Pacific. And we've seen the New Zealand government stand with the Pacific on one of those, which was the vote at the UN uh, to ask the International Court of Justice to give an advisory opinion on the obligations of states to act on climate change. Of course, if that comes back with a strong opinion, I think it will show New Zealand needs to do more, including to end oil and gas uh, production, um, starting with ending exploration, of course. Um, But the other thing from the Pacific has been uh, this call, which hasn't got as much publicity, but is just as significant, that six climate ministers from around the Pacific came together in Vanuatu and they issued the Port Vila call for a just transition to a fossil fuel-free Pacific. And that clearly calls for an end to exploration permits and a phased-out end to production, which is what we want to see in Aotearoa too. And so from Oxfam Aotearoa, we've said that we would like to see our climate minister, James Shaw, stand with those specific climate ministers and endorse that call for a just transition to a fossil fuel-free Pacific. Uh, So there's a shared vision there coming from our neighbours who are poorer than us, have less capacity than us, but have the the hope and vision from their leaders to really take action. That's what we'd like to see. All right, David Farrer. Yeah, well, look, I'm not quite agreeing here for, for two reasons. The first is I think that when you talk about reducing fossil fuel use, you have to be targeting demand, not supply. Thinking that you can stop the world by no more supply doesn't work. And as an example, in New Zealand, where actually there was a ban on any future, I think it was 
onshore rather than offshore, but you'll correct me if I'm wrong, permits, what we've actually seen is that we've had a massive increase in importing coal. Uh, so that's actually worse for the environment. And the challenge we have in New Zealand is, look, we're quite good with renewables. I think we're at 80, 85 percent. But to get to 100 percent, you need to do either have something like gas, which isn't as bad as coal as a backup for those cold winters, or you've got the Onslow battery project, which is going to cost billions and billions of dollars. And it's just gone up by, I think, 300 percent the cost for something that might only get used you know, once a year for a few days. So it's not, you know, you have to reduce the demand. The emissions trading scheme does that. I think trying to just say turning off the supply is going to help the environment isn't necessarily the case because we end up importing more coal. Okay, uh, Nick? Well, there's two things I'd say. One is that we have to do both, but First of all, I think it's great that we're now having a conversation about how we manage the transition to end fossil fuel Mm -hmm. use, not having the the argument uh, about whether we need to do it. Um, Mm -hmm. We do need to uh, reduce demand, but also the, just quoting from the IPCC report, that was the UN climate change report um, that came out recently, project CO2 emissions from existing fossil fuel infrastructure would exceed the remaining carbon budget for 1.5 degrees maximum global warming. So we do need to constrain supply as well, and that needs to be a global effort, and New Zealand can take leadership on that by taking a, a strong stand ourselves, and that would then allow us, for instance, to join as a full member of the Beyond Oil and Gas Alliance and call for other states Nick, to do the same. Nick, um, we'll have to... Our, this yeah. final, final point, we'll have to go and move on. Yeah, so that would allow us to take leadership that would call on other governments to to do the same, and it would allow us to stand with the Pacific and those communities that are currently affected by climate change. And that includes communities in Aotearoa and Tairawhiti and um, and the north of the North Island. Nick Henry, thank you for that. That's Climate and Justice Lead uh, at Oxham there on the decision to grant new offshore oil and gas exploration permits. Uh, It's been labelled as a betrayal of the Pacific by some. Now, earlier this week, finally, we talked about the polarisation of politics. We had Sir Peter Gluckman on the programme saying, look, uh, social cohesion is at stake, not just with the Posey Parker thing, but uh, over the last few years, um, COVID, etc. The Prime Minister said politicians need to be eyes wide opened. Well, one of our listeners, Diane Bellamy, texted in, about the living library of human books, a pretty unique way of getting people to talk, to understand different perspectives, to break down prejudices. Diane's with us now from New Plymouth to tell us more. Diane, kia ora. Kia ora, Warren. Uh, how, I... does, how does this work? Give us an example. Okay, well, we, we're... We run this at WOMAD, so we have a lot of festival goers who come across to the admin tent and read our catalogue of books, book titles, and each book has a synopsis like the inside cover of a book, and they choose who they would like to to read, make it a half an hour appointment, which they generally fit in and around (laughs) all the the things they want to watch and listen to, and then they come back and they and the book go to a tent and um, they they 
chat. The book talks about their story and they chat together. And it's basically to break down you know, pre- prejudices, misunderstandings and remove any fear about people who are very often very different from ourselves. And, of course, when we do that, we have um, more cohesive societies and, and people are not angry with one another because they don't understand. Um, it's very, very popular. Oh, um, interesting. Very popular. Like, we're often fully booked um People will come in, once once they knew about us, people would come in and on the Friday night, book, come straight over, book out their, their readings for the, the weekend. And, um, yeah, so we had to... Well, me, Diane, I want to I want to sneak in. I want to sneak in because uh, we came to you, but I want to sneak in. Uh, we've got a panel here, and Julie, here's an example. I would love to have a chat uh, in a living book symposium with someone likes of you, a person who's lives with low vision or indeed yes. totally blind, and saying, yes. "What's life like for you, Julie?" And I and I'd love to have that conversation with you as well, Wallace and Diane. I have a friend. Um, Carolyn Tregay, she's involved in the West uh, Wanaka Festival of Colours this weekend, doing exactly the same thing. Mm. She's deaf blind, and uh, yeah, she's been involved in this project before, and she loves having conversations with people who come along. So, um, hats off to you for bringing this initiative to WOMAD. And 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 David, David Farrow, you sitting alongside someone from the transgender community and having an honest discussion of what life's like between the two of you. It's funny you use as an example because that was actually the one I was going to use too because I've been listening to a podcast called The Witch Trials of J.K. Rowling and it's not quite what you might think. Certainly it's about why she says what she does. But in the latest episode, they interviewed two trans people. What we've got to leave it there. Uh, Jesse Ah. Mulligan talked uh, about that on the review about that podcast. Die, sorry that was so short. Uh, David Farrar, Julie Woods, thank you for your time. Happy birthday, Celine Dion, 55. I'm Wallace Chapman, back tomorrow, Friday. You know the time, 3.45. Checkpoint with Lisa Owen next. Because you